Massachusetts's housing market is really feeling the squeeze. And while we often talk about private markets and also affordable housing, the Commonwealth has more public housing per capita than any other state. So today, we're looking at the city with the biggest share of those units, Boston, and diving into the history and purpose of public housing here in the U.S. I'm Jennifer Smith of Commonwealth, and today I'm joined by Kenzie Bach, who heads up the Boston Housing Authority. She's also a former city councilor and an intellectual historian who teaches about housing justice at her alma mater, Harvard. So there's no one better to have this conversation with today. Kenzie, thanks for being here on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. So let's start with what must be the biggest, broadest of all of the questions, which is why public housing? What's the role of public housing in a healthy housing ecosystem? Sure. So I think the purpose of public housing starts from the belief that housing is a human right, that it's something that is absolutely essential for everything else that we do. It's very hard to search for or keep a job if you don't have stable housing. It's very hard to raise healthy kids if they don't have stable housing. It's tough to focus on your schoolwork if you don't have stable housing, right? So it's, you know, shelter is one of those really basic things that we need, all of us human beings. And public housing recognizes that the government, which is really all of us together in a community, you know, has a role to play in providing that safe, decent, affordable housing. You know, the way I think about it is, the same way that the public library is a public good and it makes sure that you're going to have access to books and knowledge no matter what your income is, that's really the vision of public housing as well. Um, And for the people who get access to public housing, it provides that stability and allows them to flourish in community. And I think the hardest thing for us is that whereas for everybody knows that if they stop being able to buy books, they can go to the public library. Unfortunately, we started the project of public housing, but we didn't play out the whole vision. And so we've got a lot of people on wait lists waiting for this critically needed thing. But to me, the number of people that we do serve with public housing in Boston and in the country and the number of people who are waiting for it is evidence enough of how vital it is. Well, let's dig into a few of these kind of blockages that lead to, for instance, there being shortages of public housing, but also shortages of all housing. So on a broader note right now, it's no mystery to literally anyone in the state of Massachusetts, although it's not strictly a Massachusetts problem, that we have a pretty severe housing crunch. How is that impacting public housing differently than, say, the more market rate market, uh, the kind of quote unquote affordable housing market, which is not always the same thing as public housing? What are some of the unique constraints that, that public housing authorities run into these days? Well, so public housing authorities have the same trouble as everybody that it's really expensive to build things right now. And so we're actually looking in Boston at building 2,900 more public housing units, which is the number we're allowed to build by the feds. That's more than what we have right now. So right now we have 10,000 units, but we could increase that by 30%. But building any housing unit in Massachusetts right now is extremely expensive, um, just in terms of material costs, labor, everything. Uh, And so that's a challenge for us. I think that on the other hand, um, you've got market housing that maybe isn't happening. You aren't seeing new starts right now because of the capital markets. For public housing, we know that it's a public good that we'd be paying for um, with government dollars. So it's not subject to that issue in the same way. Um, But what we see is that all parts of the housing market are deeply connected. So just for an example, I've got 42,000 people on the public housing wait list. Now that's in the con that's households, right? Not even people. So many more people. That's in a context of I have 10,000 units that the Boston Housing Authority manages. It used to be 
that reliably 10% of the Boston Housing Authority's units turned over every year. So that's a thousand units a year, right? Now that's still going to take you a while to move through a 42,000 home on wait list, but that's a it's a it's a moving number, right? The challenge now is that because there's no market housing available for people, nobody who's even making a bit more money and doing a bit better, who's living in public housing, who wants to move out, has anywhere to move to. And so what you see is that those vacancy rates at the BHA in terms of just turnover rates really like has just plummeted. Um, And so since nobody is able to move out of public housing, it limits our ability to move anybody in off the wait list. And we're super glad to be providing that stability for families in this landscape. But it it just really shows you how all the pieces of the ladder are connected and and the whole thing's pretty broken right now. And thinking about what kind of solutions there could be to that, how much of this is on balance an issue of uh, federal involvement, state involvement, city involvement in terms of both dollars, but then also kind of other policies to move construction of new housing. Uh, Right now, there's an effort, of course, on the state level to make sure that even the uh, affordable and public housing units that we have are in a condition for people to live in. Um, So how do you think about those different puzzle pieces all working together, even though you, of course, only have city authority? Yeah, so, well, we're very lucky at the Boston Housing Authority that we have support at the federal, state, and city level. Actually, it's been a very long time since we had a constellation at all three levels of a president in Joe Biden, a governor in Maura Healey, and a mayor in Michelle Wu, who are all actively supportive of public housing. I mean, that is just not a normal situation. So just to give you an example on resources, right, the mayor came in and in her opening months after taking office, put $50 million into Mildred C. Haley, a development of ours at JP, which is going to allow us to green retrofit it, give our residents like the really high quality housing that they deserve. Um, And it's more money than we've ever gotten at one time, even from HUD, right? It's an enormous, enormous capital grant that's coming from the city of Boston. Then you've got the governor who just came out with this huge bond bill that's, you know, way more money than we've ever seen a governor put into state public housing an area that's been frankly like really critically under-resourced for decades and decades. And then you've got a federal government where again, you've got decades and decades of disinvestment, right? We can't hide that. That's it's huge and it's a huge source of our problem. But then you've got an inflation reduction act that's really like, you know, pushing a lot of money down to the states. And we had the EPA administrator at a BHA site talking about how greenhouse gas reduction should start, not end in public housing developments. And so I just want to say like, I think that the all three levels of government investment and commitment is there right now in a mo- in a way that it has not been for a long time. Um, and that makes me really excited about the moment. I think what's really hard is that that's in the context of just like this huge, huge deficit of housing units period in Boston and in Massachusetts. Um, many more people want to live here and our housing supply just has not even remotely kept up. And you absolutely need to be providing more. That's that's why you have to be looking at zoning. It's why the BHA is a huge supporter of the MBTA Communities Act. We have voucher holders. So 17,000 families that we house at the Boston Housing Authority are housed with vouchers, and they can use those vouchers anywhere in the metro region. So we're actually very invested in there being opportunities for them in all these cities and towns. The reality is they face two issues. One is just discrimination. You're not supposed to be able to discriminate against people for having a voucher as their source of income, um, but people do. And the second issue is that in many towns, folks have just systematically kept apartments from being built. And so you can have a voucher and 
with new regs that we brought in, it can actually be able to pay the rent in that town, except if there's no apartments to rent anywhere, then you're not going to be able to. So I say that because sometimes people talk about supply, like it's separate from the kind of deeply affordable supply. But for us with the voucher portfolio, even market supply would allow our families, including our very low income families to access housing. So that's really important. And then also you just need to, while you're building more housing, build a bunch more affordable housing. And so I want to build those public housing units, but it's also why, you know, every supply plan anybody's got, has got to have a kind of all of the above strategy. I'm going to take advantage of your historian background here for a second, because you did mention something that is interesting in context here, which is that uh, the idea of supporting public housing, even as a concept, uh, rarely has the level of unanimity that we have here in Massachusetts at this moment. Can you dig a little bit back way back, uh, if you'd like to, into sort of why there have been sort of tensions around uh, whether or not or to what extent to support investments in public housing? Sure. I mean, so there's a couple of things. Originally, when public housing first came in, right, and this was like very much New Deal era, the very first housing project got built right at the beginning before the, just as we were tipping into World War II, and then it really, the program like grew and grew through the 40s and 50s. Um, and, you know, there are a couple things going on. One was that what really got it launched was as veterans housing. Uh, and there was a kind of sense of, you know, these folks going to the war need to have a decent place to come back to. And and I think that like far too often in America, we've gotten trapped in conversations about exactly who is deserving of a decent place to live, even though like if you actually ask most Americans, like, hey, do you think this child deserves a decent place to grow up? Do you think that this senior deserves to stay in their community, even if rents are outstripping their fixed income? Do you think a person with a long-term disability still deserves to like live in decent housing? Uh, like Americans and Bostonians are decent people. And their answers to all those questions are yes, yes, yes. But somehow we get ourselves in this frame where it's like, oh, maybe not everybody deserves housing. And I think that's been one of the things that's been a, a constant struggle for the program because it did start under this like you know the deserving veteran frame and then um you know hasn't always been able to get people to widen that view the other thing is honestly the landlord lobby fought public housing from its inception because people recognize and they're right that if you provide a decent basic version of a good that people need at a reasonable, affordable price, that it undercuts the ability of someone else to price gouge, right? Like that's, that's what's going on is housing is a completely essential thing. And that's the reason that you can price gouge because people have to have it. Um, and so I think that there's always been a tension in terms of folks who are looking to kind of benefit from the market. But to me, it's, it's actually a broken market, like a classic kind of economics vision of a market is one in which people have an option whether or not to participate in it, right? And the reality is, like, you're a human being, you don't have an option to opt out of housing. In fact, we criminalize it. So it really has never made a lot of sense as a pure market good. And um, there's historically been a tension between folks trying to treat it that way and, and folks who are looking to make a profit. I think if I recall correctly, um, you know, as far back as my memory goes these days, which is like three and a half weeks, uh, at a council meeting when you were a city councilor and kind of talking about the um, concern or angst over sort of luxury and market rate housing, the um, example that you were using was uh, waters versus expensive water bottles as, as a utility. Could you kind of remind me what that was? Because it's a, a, a blurry vision in my mind. <laughs> 
because I think like we have a lot of like pathologies and how we think about housing. Sometimes I try to think about it like another good. And I think the point I've made before um, in city council meetings and elsewhere is that people charge all kinds of things for water. And especially these days, right? There's water with like the extract of whatever, whatever in it. And it costs a ton of money and it's crazy, right? You can get your super electrolyte charged water bottles. But um, the thing that I've said is the reason that the city council doesn't hold hearings on the price of luxury water is because everybody can get the basic thing, water, out of the tap, high quality in Boston, some of the best water in the country. Um, and you can get it at a price that people can afford, right? And so therefore, we are not having a conversation about the price of luxury water, because that basic human need is provided at an affordable price. And so when folks say, hey, why is the counselor, why are politicians making an issue of luxury housing? This That's just what the market demands. That's the price that it is. We live in a capitalist economy. It's like, no, 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 no. This is something that people absolutely need. And so what does government exist for except to provide people with the basic needs that they need to in order to survive and one hopes like flourish, right? And so it is obviously the task of government to make sure that those basic things can be achieved. So I'm always like, listen, let's just secure safe, decent, basic, affordable housing for everybody. And then people can feel free to compete about how much money they want to spend on marble countertops. Like, that's fine. We don't mind that. It's just that the problem is the core price of real estate in Boston these days is not driven by finishes. It's driven by the fact that people need somewhere to live. Like the reality is the reason that everything is a luxury unit these days and that there are no middle income units in the market is that everyone's just charging what the market will bear. It's not about the finishes. It's not a like kind of like luxury option set. It's just everyone's looking for somewhere to live in the city of Boston. And I think like if you love the city of Boston as I do, then you want that intense interest in living here to continue. But you want it to be a world in which we welcome new people, not driving the people who have lived here and have made the city what it is out. Uh, and the only way that you do that is with housing abundance and with saying that we need to be providing this like basic core good at a sustainable level for everybody. We mentioned, of course, the city council and the role in the city council. You've had several roles in government, but let's let's focus in on the on the Boston side here. Uh, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but but we'll try this. Uh, so you were budget director for then Councillor Anissa Sabi George. Then you were senior advisor for policy and planning at the BHA. Then city council yourself, and now you're the head of that same housing authority. How has your thinking or your approach to providing public housing changed over time, if it has, now that you have to, you know, do it in a more practical way? I mean, listen, every day at the Boston Housing Authority is in education. um, And a lot of our core work every day is just making sure that that housing that we provide is safe, decent, affordable, right? And that means taking care of work orders. It means, you know, trying to be compassionate with those many families on the wait list, right? There's just a ton of work that goes into um, running the authority. And honestly, like I have an amazing staff and the BHA is a place that I think, you know, the people who work there work there because they have a heart for it and they really believe in providing that housing for everybody. Um, so I learned stuff from staff and residents at the BHA every day. You know, people talk a lot about public housing in a certain way. And I think that the residents of public housing are some of the proudest, most resourceful, most amazing people I know. Um, so that's something where I just feel like over the course of my time working in the field, um, I have learned like more and more from them and really seen the degree to which 
every public housing unit we have in Boston, whether it's a one that's been around for decades or one that got redeveloped in recent years, um, has really been the product of like a fight by those folks, by those residents. I mean, they've been absolutely in the lead. Um, so I think that's something that my appreciation for has like only deepened over time. Um, you know, I, I actually, what I'm really excited about when I think about what's changed over that time period that you were talking about, I actually think that public housing has come more front and center in recent years. Um, and I think that's really exciting. And I, I think it's because of this deep need. I think it's because of people realizing that the market alone will not solve this problem for us. And I also think that in the pandemic, people really saw how important it is to have truly resilient housing. And what I mean by that is like the incredible thing about public housing and about housing vouchers as provided by the federal and state government is that it's not just that they charge you 30% of your income as rent. It's that if your income drops to zero, your rent drops to zero. And so what that means is somebody can have a shock, like getting sick in the pandemic or losing a job, and they don't also lose their housing. And, and in America, in so many ways, we have these domino effect situations that we put people in where one bad thing happens to them and then they lose everything else. And then your ability to rebuild the whole puzzle is, is basically nil. And I can't even imagine the devastation of the pandemic if we had not had publicly, state and federally backed housing. And so I just think that it's been really interesting to me to see that when I was talking about, hey, could we actually start adding public housing units pre-pandemic, I felt like people thought that was a really like fringe, crazy idea. And now post-pandemic, everyone's like, oh my gosh, yes, we need this resource. How can we make it happen? Same thing with, you know, people recognizing the need for supportive housing. I think that's something that was like very much on the edges before and has now moved much more front and center um, as like of a piece with when you talk about, you know, how do you get people out of homelessness um, and how do you support folks with substance abuse? Um, and the, you know, the answer is a really supportive housing environment. And so, yeah, I think uh, that's, that's been what's really shifted over the time um, that I've been doing this and uh, it makes it really exciting, important work. And you mentioned, of course, the question of resiliency and and kind of the the climate of it all, uh, essentially, and where public housing fits into that equation. And also the Healy administration's bond bill, it's about $1.6 billion that are going to public housing. And a decent chunk of that is going to things like retrofits, going to basically greening the public housing system. So uh, how do you think about kind of the intersection between public housing and then these other kind of essential ways that we're trying to improve our housing stock in general, specifically on the climate side? Yeah, so we think of public housing as like absolutely needs to be at the front of the line in terms of the green retrofit world. And we're really excited that the Wu administration and the Healy administration share that conviction. I mean, really, the mayor is the one who said, listen, let's make it a clear goal to get BHA fossil fuel free by 2030. And we're really excited about that. And it's a really urgent goal. And it um, means that we have to spend every day working on it. But I find that really exciting because, frankly, the resources that are there and the Inflation Reduction Act and other sources on the federal level, like, shame on us if we don't chase those, right, for the public housing portfolio. But I also think that putting public housing first in the green retrofit world, it's partly about equity, right? We serve deeply low income, vastly disproportionately black and brown Bostonians. So putting them first is about climate justice, right, and, and it's kind of the lens of environmental justice communities. But also, 
one of the ways that we on the public side can most impact the private market is by creating a market ourselves and by leading where they should follow. The way I think about it is like we're working on thinking about the possibility of accessing geothermal um, at one of our public housing developments. That would be very exciting for us. But it's also an opportunity to work with the utilities around a real multifamily residential campus, which is a use case for geothermal that they're interested in, um, but they need some tests of. And we're the ones who actually own a bunch of multifamily buildings all together, right? And so I think that you know if that's something that we can do, and we can do it successfully for public housing development in Boston, then it opens up the possibility to do geothermal networks more broadly across multifamily residential. It's the same reason, actually, that I really appreciate when the universities lead, like some of the work that BU's done lately, because they're big institutions. And so it's like, if BU with its dorms and us with our, our senior high rises can both like kind of tackle the question of how do you really provide domestic hot water with a fully electric system, right? And we can sort of tackle the technical questions and create a market then we're going to like ease the transition in terms of like what's commercially available to everybody in the broader world. So I think we have a really important dual role to play as like kind of those makers of markets. And then also critically in terms of putting public housing residents who too often are left last really to the front of the line. You came to this kind of academically with a background in history and also political philosophy. And and one of the, the very interesting things, to me at least, in governance is how you kind of make the jump from a kind of philosophical, hypothetical approach to better governance and then how you actually do it. So how have you found that your background informs your kind of role as you know, an elected official when you were one and now kind of at, at the BHA? Like, is it helpful or, or does it leave you kind of dispirited by the practicalities? No, not at all. I mean, the way I think about it is any theory multiplied by zero because you can't work, get it to work in practice is zero. Like, I, I only really find it interesting um, to think about solutions that you can actually like bring into reality. Um, and a lot of bringing things into reality is about it's about community buy-in. It's about like coalitions of support. It's about the leadership, like I said before, of our residents, for instance. Um, it is often about politics, right? In the kind of sense of needing to build power for a better world. Um, and to me, those things are totally importantly intertwined. I just, I've never been interested in a theoretical world alone. What I am interested in from the academic world is that instinct to occasionally pull back and ask what we're actually trying to do here. So to me, that's part of what motivates the whole push towards social housing and a sort of renaissance of public housing is looking at the market housing world, seeing all of the problems, thinking about the ways in which we could chase solutions, right? Like, well, let's invest in creating this many more units that are in the market space, um, you know, and then kind of slowly recognizing like, oh, we can't get there from here, right? My goal is to make sure that housing is abundant and available and affordable for all. And I can make these moves around the edges, but because what spurs housing production on the market side is a lack of housing, because it's when rents go up to a certain rate that people decide it's worth investing in building. So it's almost like its own self-regulating function that is always going to keep housing out of the grasp of a certain proportion of people. The way I talk about it is that it's not that you have a bowl that has some holes in it. It's that our housing system in America is built to be a sieve. 
it is built with holes because if it didn't have holes, then if we actually provided the basic, decent, affordable housing for everybody, then you wouldn't be able to keep such elevated rents in the market. And you just have to acknowledge that contradiction because if you don't, you won't understand why why we are where we are. And so so I guess that's that's where I think like sometimes the theoretical piece can be helpful is to just zoom out and understand um, like what you're up against and what we're trying to do here. But to be honest, I uh, I grew up in Boston um, knocking doors actually for city councilors and all kinds of candidates um, and really with a lot of stories of different corners of the city and about how like, you know, this group of people made this playground happen or made this park happen or got that affordable housing built. Um, and so I had this really strong sense growing up that the city does not happen by accident, that it is really like the work of people doing it. Uh, and when it was actually when I came back from being a PhD and I was in the archives um, of this philosopher and sort of working on academic stuff that I saw people just getting pushed out of Boston around me. And I had this realization that I was just not going to spend my time in the archives while that happened in the city that I love. And um, and so my first foray really deeply into the housing work was actually helping to organize the Community Preservation Act campaigns. That was before I joined Denise's office and went to the BHA. Um, and that was a really inspiring experience because it was motivated for me by this kind of like, you know, conviction and theoretical sense that, hey, we need a lot more affordable housing, but the how to get it was a whole bunch of neighbors talking to neighbors, right? And it was like a very concrete, like we need to get this many people to vote to tax themselves. It's Community Preservation Act, a small surcharge to put a tax on our community in order to produce more affordable housing. And I really found that actually very inspiring because it showed me that like the will is there in this political community to do this work. Um, and that's that's kind of inspired me ever since. All right. Well, my last question, I'm glad you brought up the CPA. We've talked about the MBT Communities Act very briefly. You mentioned social housing, where there's a you know social housing pilot program on the horizon if folks sign on to it at the state level. Um, what is if you can narrow it down to one, the one most interesting either innovation or policy proposal that has the potential to impact public housing in Massachusetts right now that's getting floated. I'm super interested on the social housing side in how we could do mixed income housing, but with a more full like set of income. So like really also including the middle um, and get that housing built with some kind of like social or public equity source um, that charges a lot less for its money than the current capital markets. Because what's basically going on, the reason nobody can build their housing, I think it's worth saying that, well, there's been a lot of kind of um, smoke about the idea that the like Wu administration, for instance, with policies like the inclusionary development program, which by the way, it's a great update and it's actually going to help our voucher holders access more neighborhoods in the city of Boston, which is super important to us. Um, but there's been a lot of this kind of smoke around, oh, is it these types of pro-affordable housing policies that are causing the slowdown in residential starts? And what drives me crazy about that is everybody who's saying it knows that's not what's going on. Residential starts are not happening because interest rates are crazy. And the problem is, is if the Treasury will just give you money for sitting on it, then nobody wants to do something that has risk involved unless you're going to pay them like a stratospheric amount of money and doesn't make any sense 
until, frankly, we just wait for people to have to pay even more in rent because the housing supply is even more scarce. Like that's the insane situation that we're currently in. It doesn't have anything to do with like the mayor's policies. It has to do with the larger macroeconomic environment. Um, but what I think is really interesting and what I see both the state and city having an appetite to do is asking the question of like, well, is there a way that we could be less captive to those capital markets? Because we need this housing. Like we need it because it is that just like critical piece of social infrastructure for people to be able to live here in Massachusetts, thrive, do the jobs we want them to do, like make the inventions. Like it's one of those things where you can't even capture how much productivity and creativity and like human thriving comes out of having like a solid base of housing. Right. And I think everybody recognizes that like everyone in Boston and mass is like, yeah, we need this. So it can't be that we are in a global economic environment that simply does not allow housing to be built. Like if that's the case, then you got to figure out a way to shuffle the deck. And so I think that's probably the most interesting thing right now is the question of, can we make capital available from sort of whether it's public or philanthropic like sources, but as like equity alternatives um, at a lower rate of return to kind of get these housing starts moving. And specifically that kind of like more social housing that serves a broader population and doesn't squeeze out the middle. So that's super interesting to me. And then I think in our super public housing focus space, this opportunity to build these 2,900 more units that Boston could have, the fair cloth units they're called, um, that's the thing that's uh, really exciting for me. Thanks again to Kenzie Bach for joining me. Next week is a big week here at Commonwealth. We're actually becoming Commonwealth Beacon. So that's the same journalism you know and trust, plus some changes that we're really excited about. We're introducing a new Commonwealth by the Numbers section with polling and data dives, and our website is also getting a clean new look, so you have an easier time finding the news you're looking for, breaking, in-depth, even some of the best from the archives. Plus, our opinion section is getting a rebrand and reorganization as Commonwealth Voices. We'll have some great new content around the launch, including a special State of Massachusetts Democracy podcast with me and Harvard professor and political philosopher Danielle Allen live on Wednesday, November 1st, which you can watch at 3.15 on the Commonwealth Beacon YouTube channel or here wherever you listen to podcasts. See you there. 